Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by a super lawyer's rising star. He is a sports law analyst and host of the Con Detrimental podcast. We welcome Legal Eagle, Daniel Lust. Uh, thank you for having me on, Sean. I did a long time in the making. Happy to, uh, to be on with you today. Let's go beyond the mic. So much to talk about today with you. What are the legal ramifications for the NCAA and for universities if one, just one student athlete passes away from COVID-19? So it's a question that I think is the elephant in the room from all this. You know, just objectively, you know, you look at the numbers, obviously cases are one thing, deaths are another thing, but deaths uh, exist. So you, you have to address them as lawyers. You have to prepare for the worst case scenarios. So in the law, the area of law that we'd be touching on from all of these specific COVID lawsuits uh, would generally be a negligence lawsuit, which is the general standard if somebody gets hurt, you and the courts will judge them as to whether they acted negligent, uh, negligently under the circumstances. So schools, coaches, anyone that's placed in a position of authority has an obligation to act reasonably and take reasonable precautions under the circumstances. So if you fail to take those reasonable precautions, and you cause some type of harm from COVID, be it, uh, you know, maybe an inflamed heart condition, as we've seen in some athletes, God forbid, a death, you could be facing liability overall. I mean, we could kind of get into the, the economics of it, but there is, you know, obviously a lot of exposure to a school or the, you know, the injury caused to or a death caused to a very young college athlete. So whether that's someone that could be a top pick in the draft or someone that just has 80 years of life ahead of them, that is a, a very large uh, exposure to the schools and something that they surely have on their mind. Now, what about the athletes whose potential draft stock may be hurt by a shutdown, like players from the Big Ten or Pac-12? Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, well, I guess um, what I think you're alluding to is the, the issue on the, on the Big Ten front. Um, there are parents across the country uh, that are worried about their sons, their daughters missing their senior year of college sports and maybe that's hurting their draft stock. Maybe that's hurting their ability to complete, you know, Olympically or any type of professional capacity. We haven't obviously seen those lawsuits, right? We've never had the cancellation of the college semester. Uh, and that's since before COVID. I could see a lawsuit. I think it's kind of swarming. The buzzards are swarming around the big 10 from someone's career earnings being hurt because of a decision, maybe an arbitrary decision that was made. You could see that. I think it's going to be, we'll say a little tenuous in terms of causation as to how someone's draft stock may or may not have been affected, but it's never going to stop someone from filing a lawsuit. As, as uh, you know, I say, you could sue anyone for anything. Uh, it's just another question of whether or not you can win, but it's not going to stop someone from suing. Now, do you see the risk aversion of the PAC 12 and big 10 being less or more responsible than the less risk aversion from the big 12 sec and ACC? I think it's a, it's a dollars and cents liability analysis that these schools are putting on. You know, we, we hear a lot about what the, the doctors are saying and from a risk aversion standpoint, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. If you ask the doctor point blank and you have them, you know, in one of those fancy, my cousin Vinny scenes, and you put them on the, the, the witness stand and you said, what's the safest way to play college football? The answer would be there is no safe way to play college football during a pandemic. The safest way is, is not to play at all. But the question that these doctors, uh, I imagine, are being asked is more of a layered, complex question. Do you believe that the liabilities and the harm facing these college athletes, you put a dollarized value on that amount of lawsuits that you could be hit with, will that exceed the revenue that the schools stand to generate from either a limited sense of fans or uh, you know, even just the TV deals, which are very lucrative? So I think that's the layered, loaded conversations 
that all these schools are having. I think, you know, the, the risk aversion point, I think all schools are, are in, a, in a sense, putting their, their students at harm's, you know, in, in risk by playing the season. But, you know, we don't play and we don't make these decisions just purely on one factor. Uh, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, Sean, the fear of, of CTE that's prevalent in any football game that, that someone plays, any soccer game, any type of contact sport that exists. That's why these athletes, uh, there's, a, there's a concept in the law called the assumption of the risk. And that's when you hear comments from Trevor Lawrence, comments from Justin Fields. We know the risk and we want to play. You know, there can be risk aversion, but if the athletes are comfortable playing and want to play and their parents are starting these letter writing campaigns to play, at some point you have to allow them to play. Uh, and that's the same conversation that we'd have, you know, we've had with CTE for 10 years. Athletes know the risk and still want to play. And we've never had a full shutdown of college football from CTE. So just in another important analysis here, you know, I'm not really feel so strong about one side or the other, but as a lawyer, you kind of have to see the full landscape uh, and then make a, you know, an informed decision uh, looking at all the various factors. We have to have you talk about the big debate that few people are really talking about. Stanford canceled sports this year especially women's sports, and some schools may cancel women's programs because of lack of money. What are the potential Title IX implications from just football being played this fall? So I do view this as a big problem for the college sports landscape, and maybe they'll get away with it for the fall just because of you know necessity. But Title IX, for those that, that aren't you know as familiar with the concept, the easiest way I can understand is that if you're going to support men's sports, uh, and you're going to invest uh, certain resources in those sports, you have to give equally or, or comparable resources to the women's sports. And now, just looking across the sports landscape, we have fall football. We don't have anything else. So that, to me, raises a red flag. I don't think that's necessarily, per se, violation of Title IX, but if that trend continues into the winter and the spring, and the only sports that exist are you know, the, the moneymakers, be it college football and men's basketball, that's staring, uh, and that looks a lot of loud red sirens going off. My sense of it, if you're going to invest these resources, um, which you know you've heard high-level athletes like Justin Fields talk about or Trevor Lawrence, to make the college football players feel safe on campus and giving them these you know rapid response tests every few days, you're going to need to do the same thing to to keep your women's sports afloat. And failure to do that obviously invites Title IX liability and ramifications. So it's a it's a very big cost to do that. But will the uh, you know the NC administrators, the commissioners want to invest that? I would think that's the smart decision. I mean, or you know, showing you know conversely, part of the decision. I've, I this is just my own opinion. I haven't seen this, but part of the decision for for some schools like the Big Ten uh, and the Pac-12 to cancel all sports is to not invite Title IX uh, liability because if no sports are playing, you can't make the argument that men's sports are getting you know disparate treatment, which I think is just sitting out there for the taking. So the longer this trend continues, I think more uh, more Title IX ramifications coming. But you know, I'm not I'm not rooting against college football. I'm just pointing out that uh, there there will be ramifications on the other end if this if this does continue. A sports law analyst, host of the Con Detrimental podcast, and a lawyer in his own right. Our own legal department, Daniel Lust, is here beyond the mic. Now, how do you see the rights, fees, paid renegotiations for television and radio contracts be changed? Does COVID give companies an opportunity to renegotiate contracts that they may have made in haste? So we, we saw that first and foremost, uh, I guess the first domino in all of this was Under Armour's contracts with UCLA and then Cal. And that's going to be you know fought in a, in a courtroom. But the, the legal term of art that everyone's become so familiar with during these past few months is force majeure. 
And whether a force, a true force majeure event uh, occurred is going to be dependent on how it's kind of written in the contract or if it's written in the contract at all. So, Sean, and, and the people will, I'm not sure if everyone is aware of this, but in the NBA, those guys, you know, uh, in their last collective bargaining agreement, wrote in a clause that said a force majeure is triggered when an epidemic occurs, not necessarily a pandemic, which is one step higher, which we're in now, but an epidemic. So we knew that the NBA season could be canceled. We knew that force majeure would occur, and we knew we need to rewrite a lot of, um, you know, the CBA, for example, would need to just be torn up and rewrote if they wanted to act on the force majeure trigger. So why I bring that up, the NBA is the only known sports entity that I'm, that I'm aware of in any major college sports, the NCAA, that use the term uh, epidemic or any type of disease type of language in their force majeure clause. Now, if you don't have a pure triggering event, like no, right, John, no one can argue that there's an epidemic that's occurring, but people can argue and people are currently arguing as to whether or not a force majeure, a, a true act of God, is preventing the performance of college football from occurring. So that's the battle that's going to be fought on all these different rights, television contracts, radio contracts, media contracts, whether or not a force majeure is occurring right now as we sit here in August, I think remains to be seen. And that's going to be a battle for lawyers to say, hey, even if the words aren't in there, force majeure, act of God, we are not capable of playing football because it's a completely act of God, something out of our control. Force majeure, COVID, does create a potential triggering event, but absent the terms in the contract that would clearly spell it out, pandemic, epidemic, I think you're going to have a hard time uh, finding a really clear-cut case. So, as they say, that there will be lawyers, and it's going to be a very, uh, very expensive battle in the courtroom. Well, speaking of very expensive battles in courtrooms, with the NCAA finding name, image, likeness as best they can, and NCAA leaving the hands of COVID-19 into the hands of the major conferences, how close are we to the complete destruction of the NCAA? Uh, Sean, I feel like you say that with a little bit of glee in your voice, this complete destruction. Like a little bit. I, I, it's not a matter of a glee. It's a matter of I've always thought that the NCAA was heavy-handed in some, some ways. It's like uh, North Carolina has a uh, NCAA violation. Okay, well, Cleveland State's on probation. <laughs> Kansas has major violations, and, and there are possibility that Kansas could face major NCAA violations. Uh, North Carolina State was handed a two-year probation. I just don't see the NCAA as a organization of fairness. The NCAA is an organization of what makes the NCAA and their partner institutions more money. I'll give you a good example in the legal context, and then we can kind of parse out what's going on now. I've covered this pretty closely, the Zion Williamson litigation. It remains to be seen if these allegations are true, but usually when there's smoke, there's something there. Uh, and there's been recorded conversations, you know, between Zion's father and, a, and an assistant coach at Kansas. Uh, there was conversations between uh, Nike, uh, Nike officials saying that they, they want to pay Zion's family to cripple Adidas. So, you know, usually when there's smoke, at least there would be, you'd think, uh, an investigation launched by the NCAA into Duke into figuring this out. You know, it's not a court of law. It's not beyond, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But I, I think if I was a, an NCAA purist, I would say, we got to investigate this thing. But, you know, no no investigation into Duke, uh, you know, and uh, no pun intended, like a blue blood of, of the NCAA basketball. So uh, I'm, I'm with you to some extent. I think uh, it's selective enforcement, which, you know, is it, is it great? But that's just the world we live in now. Sean, to your maybe delight, 
I think the cracks uh, on the NCAA Foundation are, are very much being exposed. Most will know, right? Now, Mark Emmert, president of the NCAA, the NCAA does not, uh, you know, Mark Emmert doesn't have his finger on the pulse of college football, the FBS. Uh, that is, we'll say, a separate legal entity. Uh, they make their own decisions. It's really controlled by the various schools that are in the FBS conference. Mark Emmert doesn't control this. There's no FBS commissioner to come in and wrangle all the conferences in and get them all on the same page. So why I bring that up, there is no power that the NCAA independently has. So all these companies are left to come up with their own independent rules. So that's why you're seeing a splintering of the Big Ten and the Pac-12. And, you know, and the SEC is trying to rope the ACC and the Big 12 in to make sure they're on board. Why I bring that all up in a name, image, and likeness context, it's going to be kind of a mess, right? I mean, right now it's a mess in terms of who's playing in the fall, who's playing in the spring, what recruits are doing, if you're going to allow, you know, and you know, kind of as, a, as an interesting side note in all of this, Tom Mars is, a, is a, fa- a famous college football attorney. He helped Justin Fields transfer from Georgia over to Ohio State with, a, with one of these hardship waivers to not allow him to, to sit out a season. He's now kind of leading the charge against the Big Ten to figure out what went into their decision. So you have attorneys involved that are just uh, kind of ostracizing certain conferences. So you could have in the next week or so, uh, I'm just watching it, Kevin Warren, the commissioner of the Big Ten, that said he's not going to change his stance and, and uncancel the season. You could have an exodus of players leaving the Big Ten to go play in other schools. I also saw a report yesterday that you could have six Big Ten schools leave the Big Ten and have their own, I don't know what they're going to call it, just a separate standalone conference. So if you can just destroy the Big Ten and just people are just leaving, that's going to make NCA that much less powerful to, to control this. So name, image, and likeness, the NCA is not going to make their own rules across the board. They're going to make their guidance. The uh, Board of Governors are going to make their guidance. But those decisions are going to be left up to the conferences. So we've seen this play out over the past couple of weeks. The conferences have radically different views uh, on safety, uh, and in terms of you know drawing revenue from college football, we should expect the same on the name, image, and likeness front. And not to mention, maybe the biggest domino in all of this, players with this hashtag, you know, we are united front, I don't think it's a coincidence that we are united. United has the same prefix as union. If these players start to unionize, um, and there's no, we'll say, uh, unifying force on the NCA's front, right? There's no FBS commissioner to get this all under wraps. I think that's just another dagger and another blow to this NCA model that's been so lucrative over these past couple of years. So if it's not the conferences themselves that are going to destroy it, these athletes look like they're threatening it too. So if I'm the NCA, the walls are closing in uh, and the kind of farce of this model that the NCA and Mark Emmert at the you know top of this pyramid, I, I think that's taking a number of hits. And, and mind you, Sean, Mark Emmert has spoken twice in like the last six months on COVID. So, uh, I think uh, you can read the tea leaves. He's pretty much taken a backseat in all of this. You know, I, I do think that this is, if you're just reading the signs, I don't I don't think it looks good for this NCAA model. We can talk about all sorts of interesting sports law news, Robert Kraft, St. Zion, and more, but time is running out, so it's time for the Rocking Eight. Eight random questions to answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Let's do it. If it pleases the court, <laughs> have you ever personally sued anyone? I have not. What's your favorite breakfast cereal? Ooh, I'm a big fan of Reese's Puffs. That's cool. If you weren't a lawyer, you would have been a... Sports agent. Who is your wrestling icon? Uh, you smell what the rock is cooking? <laughs> Are you a heel rock fan or a face rock fan? I watched the ascent of Rocky Maivia 
But uh, my my favorite rocks, you know, the Rudy Poos, the uh, you know, turn it sideways. I, that's the, the height of rockisms. That's my favorite rock. Best moment from your time at Union College. Oh, um, I uh, I met my wife my uh, beginning of my junior year, the fall of my junior year. So uh, if she's listening somewhere, uh, that that is my favorite moment, and I'll stick to it. What's the best thing about your wife, Rachel? Oh my God. Uh, she is a, a lovely mother to our nine month old Dylan. What's the worst continuing education course you've ever taken? Uh, I mean, I teach some, uh, continuing legal, uh, legal education classes on social media, uh, and technology law. So I'm going to say that those are the best. I don't, I never, I've never taught a bad class and uh, you know, with all the instructors out there, I've never been to one either. All they're all good. And what's your dream job? Um, you know, Sean, maybe it would be hosting a show alongside you. I, I'll, I'll take it to the airwaves. My, my, my podcast isn't paying the bills yet. So, uh, you know, maybe my own show someday. Daniel, where can people find your work? So I'm at Sports Law Lust on Twitter and Instagram. And the podcast, it's Con Detrimental on Twitter and Instagram. And the show is called Conduct Detrimental. So we, we have some, we have a lot of fun, uh, a lot of wrestling stuff too, if you happen to be in that weird uh, sports, wrestling, and law intersection, but, uh, you know, just the, the latest of the, on the sports law intersection. Daniel Lust, our sports legal eagle, host of the Con Detrimental Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Especially thanks for not billing me. <laughs> you got it, Sean. Always a pleasure. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. <laughs>